So I think that the winners long term are going to be the Indians and maybe, you know, the Germanies who engage at different levels other than at the state. China has a good run in the short term. I think it will lose that advantage in the long term. I am Dickens Zolewe and this is the fourth and final episode of my interview with veteran journalist Charles Onyango Obo about the East African community as it marks its 20th anniversary this year. Do check out the first three episodes before listening to this one. Now Charles, we've spent three episodes talking about the past and looking at current events. Now for this final episode, we look at the future of East Africa. Now, in your last article, you moved on from talking about the six East African countries to talking about the greater East African region, which is comprised of 20 countries. And this includes Sudan, DR Congo, and Mozambique. And you say this is the world's most important region. Why? A while back, this forecasting firm, Stratford, it did uh, a forecast of what it called the post-China 16, basically, which will be the manufacturing countries the big manufacturing countries in the world, when China becomes uh, you know, a mature, sophisticated economy and moves into services. And, uh, and of all, you know, all the countries that projected in, uh, in, uh, in Africa were in East Africa, you know, Uganda, Tanzania, you know, Ethiopia, Kenya, so, so it's it's, uh, and even if you look at growth now, you know the fastest growing economies. I think, barring perhaps, uh, you know, a um, bit of Ivory Coast and Ghana and uh, and, uh, and Senegal, uh, but uh, you know, Rwanda and you know, uh, Ethiopia have you know the highest rates, and then. They are also going, and you know, we discussed this year. They are going to have in the next few years. They'll have the largest workforce and the largest population. You know, um, they'll have the largest cities outside of uh, of uh, of uh, you know uh, Lagos. Very soon, I think uh, Kinshasa and Dar es Salaam are going to be uh, you know the biggest uh, cities in Africa. And then, most importantly, because they are on, you know, the west side of the Indian Ocean Rim, which is, I think, the next, or in fact, currently the biggest prosperity sphere in the world. So I think that because of that, this is going to be the place which is happening, particularly after 2035 there onwards, it's going to be smoking. And the the region, as you, you know, you're talking about 20 countries, and probably if you look at the whole continent, I mean, there's some still some very serious problem, especially it's a younger continent, yes, but then it's a continent that um, it looks like it's struggling to provide especially jobs for its youth. Yeah, in fact, the, the, that that is, uh, you know, you know, the biggest risk, but, but it's a good problem to have because, you see, previously, the Africa's biggest problem was security. I mean, you know, uh, war and insecurity killed more people, or in fact, as much people as a disease. Today, traffic accidents kill more people than conflict in Africa. So it, it's it's uh, it is in that sense a good problem to have um, because it shows there has been a structural and very fundamental change 
in in the threats that the continent that the difficulty is that it's not an easy one to solve but there are some easy pickings so if you look at uh, you know uh, you know the data if uh, if africa just moved faster on uh, trading with itself you know establishing a you know co- you know common market you know, in about five or so years, it can double the size of the continent's economy. You know, if, uh, you know, you look at uh, just what has happened in a place like Ethiopia, um, after just one year of Prime Minister Amena, you know, Abiy Ahmed's reform, there have been some very dramatic, uh, you know, changes. I mean, if you see the figures, you know, on, uh, you know, um, tourism, if you look at what is happening in the economic zone, it's been dramatic. But really, if just Africa did one thing, opened up, allowed travel, and did more trade with, with itself, it has the ability to double its wealth and double jobs in, in the space of now, I really want to talk about the trade bit, but you've just mentioned uh, Abi Hamid. He's obviously been the story of the year. In fact, as we speak, I think he's almost about to mark his uh, one-year anniversary, and it's just incredible looking back. Um, and it, it's it's unbelievable that all that he has achieved, you know, the peace with Eritrea, uh, the reaching out to Somali and Somaliland and Djibouti, uh, and the opening up political space, media freedoms. But I just wanted to get your thoughts about, um, you know, the impact Abi Hamid has had in the region. I mean, I, for one, at least in my reading, I'm not seeing, I mean, I can, I can see the West, the Western media being incredibly obsessed with what's happening in Ethiopia. But I'm not seeing the, you know, the, that the same level of obsession in the region and even in Africa to the point that uh, you have a situation where, um, you know, these countries uh, are looking at Ethiopia and saying, you know, we want that kind of leader in our countries. I don't know, is that your reading as well? No, there is there is quite a lot of interest and enthusiasm in what is uh, is doing. I mean, if, for example, you see. Uh, just just take Kenya alone. The fact that, that uh, um, Abi has come in and his attempt to pacify the Oromo regions, it has far-reaching consequences for Kenya because, you know, the Oromo region, basically, you know, uh, it runs the whole border with, you know, northern border with Kenya. And if you look at some of the data that uh, we've got now, um, the road... Uh, you know, the road uh, from, uh, uh, you know, the Mombasa, you know, through to Addis Ababa corridor for just just take the volume of trade at, you know, uh, Mombasa and revenues for Kenya. It's gone up like five times. The, I think the ADB projects that uh, um, over space of a couple of years trade between Kenya and Ethiopia will grow in the region of 95%. So, I mean, it is dramatic. And just the fact that there is now peace um, between him and uh, and Eritrea, and it is ability to reorganize the dynamics around Eritrea's support, for example, for Shabab, 
and uh, you know his decision on just removing visas for uh, uh, you know Af- Africans to to travel to Ethiopia, one of the continent's biggest countries. If you see the number of travelers that is happening there, I mean it is uh, it is uh, it's a big deal. I think uh, you know and. Uh, and uh, Kenyan companies are lining up because you know you have people like uh, Telco Safaricom. It says if if Safaricom was just to get into Ethiopia, it would double the volume of it is Mpesa business just like that. And you know so you know the KCB, the Kenya Commercial Bank, all these fellows are lining up. And there is ever a possibility that within the next one year, all of them will be up and running. And I think it's really good for uh, for their businesses as companies, but also for the broader region. I mean, that's the business side. But what, what about the political uh, side as well? You listen to Abi Hamid speaking. I mean, he's speaking about you know, individual rights, um, political competition, and you don't get that kind of language from many African countries. So my actually question was based on, at least from my reading, I'm not seeing the same level of agitation um, from uh, other African countries, um, or rather from the, you know, from particular groups, maybe the youth will probably be making some agitation saying, you know, we want an Abi type of leader, or this is the future of Africa, and therefore we want to hear more of this kind of language from our leaders and not the repression that most of them are kind of facing. So the issue of sequence is important here because a lot of these democratic movements were already happening in other countries before Ethiopia. I think that they, so, so that in fact, that perhaps it, you, know, you could actually ask what did the activists, how were they inspired? by the rest of Africa, not the other way around. Because, you know, remember, it's just one year. And, and all these democratic, you know, uh, movements in other parts of were already active. I think the one place where it obviously seems that uh, it has caused, a, you know, it has emboldened activism is in Sudan. Because it's, it's, uh, it's unlikely that if a B hadn't happened, we would be seeing what we are seeing in Sudan right now. Just to now talk about trade, because um, you had this fascinating conversation with uh, Joshua Oigara, who's the group CEO and managing director of uh, Kenya Commercial Bank. And from your conversation, I mean, you talked about the intra-African trade, but James was saying that actually the China's Belt and Road Initiative is a much bigger deal. Yes, because because uh, what what does uh, China's Belt and Road Initiative tries to do? Basically, it is trying to build a unified infrastructure in, you know, I think in a narrow sense, to be able to deliver goods from China to any part of Africa in seven weeks. Now, that is really uh, dramatic, and it is it is coming along with the infrastructure to make that happen. And in Africa, the, you know, the missing thing is what is the direct link between the east side and the west side of the continent? And, you know, uh, through this series of bell, you know, uh, Belt and Road initiatives, it is likely 
not in the next five or so years, but you know, probably in another seven, ten, that that loop might be closed. Now, just think of the ability to land uh, a product in uh, Mombasa or Dar es Salaam and get it across to Lagos in a couple of days. That will be dramatic. So, and and they have got the money for it. So it's it's the the magic, and this is what Joshua Waigara is saying. The market itself in Africa, even there'll be a lot of gain from opening, but the big big shot in the arm will come from logistics because the data shows that you gain several times more from logistics than from just you know removing the traditional barriers to to trade. So the the China initiative seems to be the strongest in, you know, uh, strategic goal by any big player with money to pay for it. That could make this elusive integrated African market arrive faster. Is the region ready? Is the region prepared to what is to come of China? Because, I mean, right now, as we speak, I mean, the overriding uh, debate is all about the debt trap because there was a lot of celebration a few years back, uh, you know, with the whole looking east and the money that was coming in from China. But now this money has to be repaid. And there is a lot of concern that uh, maybe most of these countries have uh, borrowed a bit too much. I mean, just the other day, uh, China had to negotiate with the Cameroon uh, part of payment that was due. And I think they probably extended the same uh, to uh, uh, Congo Brazzaville. So are you getting the sense that, yes, there is all this excitement about the, the, the sort of um, you know, money and infrastructure that is coming from China? But is, are we, is, is the region, is the, is the continent prepared to manage that? Africa, Africa really never, or no country actually ever prepares itself for these kind of things. You know, all of these things just develop organically. Now, you are right that we are going to see very calamitous debt defaults. And uh, so the question we should actually ask is that what happens next? And I think we get a sense of what happened in, uh, you know, the, you know, the 90s when uh, you know the imf and the world bank and you know uh you know the west was the one to whom most of africa was indebted that crisis actually it created an impetus for reform for market reforms for uh, for financial reforms and all these kind of things so actually i think that there will be massive defaults on china debts all across the board There'll be a lot of skeletons scattered on the street. For sure, there'll be a lot of pain. But I just think that sometimes when you look at Africa, it's only those kind of crises that give you something to move forward. Because just policy initiatives in, in good times, we never do it. We never do it. So so the, the, the two realities are uh, probably necessary. In fact, that is probably a necessary disaster for Africa to move forward. Now, I just want to go back to, uh, we, we started talking about the larger East Africa region. And um, one thing that fascinated me with, with what you, you, you wrote was about the population, because you said that the population 
uh, of the greater East African region, these are the 20 nations that we talked about, uh, will be uh, you know, about 457 million uh, people uh, compared to um, you know, uh, West Africa, 402 million, and Southern Africa, about 178 uh, million people. So I'm just wondering where, I mean, what is the factor that is making uh, the greater East African region? I mean, yes, there are bigger countries, but is there like a cultural factor that makes <laughs> makes this place the most uh, fertile? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I, it's 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 uh, um, because ordinarily and particularly, you know, considering that most economies in the region have grown fairly well, the middle class has grown. Would have expected that at this point, eh, the population wouldn't be growing so fast. But I mean, if you see what is happening in countries like Uganda, uh, Kenya, Kenya, probably a long term will will stabilize sooner than the rest no it's 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 just uh, so no i i can't i can't uh, i can't and have not seen any explanation for what this is happening but if 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 you look at the factor of the ability of uh, you know of uh, of a society to feed itself uh, you know of families to feed their children as an incentive it is relatively easy in that broad region we call East Africa. The lands are more fertile. It has got most of the water in Africa. Uh, there is virtually no desert apart from, uh, you know, uh, beats of uh, Djibouti. Uh, it's got most of it is forests. So it's 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 uh, it is relatively easier at uh, at uh, at a sub at a subsistence level. To raise families, so maybe from a more rational uh, factor, that could be one of the incentives for why we are seeing these, uh, you know, ever galloping. I think I think Uganda's former foreign minister said that we are breeding like like rabbits. <laughs> <laughs> the <laughs> the um, I mean, we we talked about uh, China, but I'm also I mean, there are other interests as well. I mean, the United States, France, uh, Germany. Uh, in fact, uh, a, f a few months ago, I, I interviewed uh, Germany's Commissioner for Africa, and he was talking, telling me about German government has this you know, idea about what they're calling the Marshall Plan with Africa, not for Africa, but with Africa. Turkey is also interested. India is also interested uh, on the continent. Does China now have the overriding lead? And the others will just have try and see um, where they, they fit in, in areas where China is not uh, involved? Yeah, I, th I think China has a lead in the kind of the, kind of the official macro space with governments and things like that. But, you know, the, the limitation with China is that China doesn't do uh, anything with independent society, with independent businesses, with, uh, with civil society and, uh, and you know, uh, autonomous uh, so, social organization. So it is, uh, it is and, and that is where, you know, historically, uh, you know, the U.S. and the Europe have, have been fairly successful because that 
is uh, you know it really gives you a long term uh, you know strategic advantage and allows you to create depth which is not disrupted so much by politics so i think that china is doing very well in that space and i think if you could say long term where will the source of their problems and failure come it's i think that their inability to engage with africa as a society as opposed to just africa as a collection of political actors so but uh, so the india 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 is and you know and you know to a, to a large extent uh, you know the european union broadly but particularly the uk in particular they have a lot of the more subjective factors you know india there is a very very large uh, in east africa in particular and parts of west africa um, you know citizen of uh, of uh, of indian descent and you know they are very very suc- successful they have built institutions um social institutions hospitals and all that apart from uh, from the many businesses that that they have and we are seeing that india is beginning to work very very closely with those groups investing money putting money in culture you know museums and those kind of things so i think that india is in a good place you know the gulf states and turkey are playing the hard security game to do with the politics of uh, the horn of africa you know the gulf of eden and the indian ocean um we have not yet seen any signs that um, apart from a few places like turkey where uh, sorry uh, tanzania where turkey is beginning to get into infrastructure railways and those kind of things we haven't seen them moving outside that uh, security space so i think that the winners long term are going to be the indians and maybe you know the germanies who engage at different levels are that at the state china has a good run in the short term i think it will lose that advantage in the long term interesting let, let me quote you here you said in an east africa that today has nearly 60% of the world's un peacekeepers and most of the refugees on the continent it could herald the new stage of african citizenship and you know you later on talk about south sudan and somalia and burundi and you're saying that if these uh, co- the conflicts in these countries are not settled then essentially these people are likely to be in a way uh, lose their national identity and have this new african citizenship as you call it yeah because if if you see what happens in uganda which has been applauded for having the best or i don't know enlightened you know refugee policy it's uh, you know uganda usually tries to move very quickly towards getting people out of those uh, uh, un tents and to allow them to move out to farm and be part of uh, and you know be part of the community and um, so that if uh, if you go if you go for example and you know a classic example of this is when kenya had post post election violence in 2008 uh, there were anything up to 6000 kenyans who moved across the border into eastern uganda 
Now, you know, within weeks, they, even the local communities had moved and taken them out of the camp. And uh, very soon the government rushed and came and found the few who were still left and carried them to a refugee camp in the center of the country. Why? Because they had, they had just disappeared and become part of the community. And so if, uh, and so now we are having cities of, uh, of, of South Sudanese ref refugees developing in Uganda without the, the squalor and all that, you know, regular schools and those kind of things. And the most important, I think, movement in this area was the announcement, I think, about a month ago that Ethiopia said it will develop the same policy that, uh, you know, refugees would now work and be allowed to be part of the community as much as possible. So we are already seeing, um, you know, the tendency now. And, and my argument is that if that happens, it, it will probably not have a very positive impact on the home countries where those people come from, because it might remove the pressure to resolve those conflicts internally, and, and they will continue to simmer, like we said yesterday, as a lot intestate conflicts. And, and Kenya, Kenya is, you know, is, is an outlier in that sense, in its announcements, and uh, something emerged again about it closing the refugee camp in, you know, in, in Dadaab. Because Kenya used to be fairly very forward-looking in, uh, you know, in this area. So I think that, and in fact, Rwanda did the same thing, didn't go as far as Uganda and Ethiopia with, uh, with Burundi refugees. So we are beginning to see more countries adopting that policy and uh, refugees getting fairly localized. Now let's look into the future. What's your projection of what this region will look like? I mean, you've basically talked of, we've talked about the greater East African region, how that will influence not just the region, but the world. But what other issues that you, do you think that people should be paying attention to uh, as we look to the next 20 years? Very soon, you are going to be in a situation where you will have anything between 20 probably to 30 percent of students in east africa will have studied in another part of the of uh, of the region other than itself and uh, and i keep saying that you know what will these kind of people whose growing up has been not an experience back in their home district but in a neighboring country I think that those people are going to change loyalties and East African identities. That is an area which we are not, uh, you know, looking at right now. I mean, uh, as early as, uh, you know, uh, six years ago, uh, there were so many Kenyan teachers moving out of Kenya to go and teach international schools. And MP even tried to move a motion to stop them. Yes, you know, uh, my own experience living in Kenya the last uh, one and a half uh, decade is that if, if I'm talking to people who are over 35 or something of the sort, virtually one in three of them was taught by a Ugandan teacher 
who came over in the year, the difficult years of Uganda when everyone was fleeing and becoming an exile and a refugee. And we are beginning to see, and in fact, a lot of the present architecture, the soft architecture of the ESC is being influenced by, uh, by those by those uh, people. And uh, I looked at some numbers, you know, we have these uh, one-stop border points in, uh, in uh, you know, in the ESC. And there was a report by Trademark East Africa, which was saying that then the time of processing goods and uh, services and human traffic across the East African borders, which have one stop border point, have gone down from between 75, depending on where you go, to 90% at the one stop border points between um, Uganda and, uh, you know, and, and Kenya. And even in countries which are not necessarily single community, if you look at Rwanda and DRC, at the Rubavu border between Rwanda and DRC, they actually no longer have a manned border, so to speak. It's an automated border. You go and you swipe with your ID and you go across. So there are a lot of these very, very small changes, which I think they, they are not dramatic. They, you know, they are, they are not good headline stories because there isn't a lot of conflict and drama in them. But if you look all over, we have so many, so many of these cases. And uh, collectively, in the next five to 15 years, we'll just wake up to a very, very different East Africa. Are we ready for it? <laughs> no, you, you see, um, no, we will never be ready because, you know, you never plan, you know, for example, you never plan for, uh, look at, uh, you know, for the, 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 if you look at the trade figures between Uganda and Kenya for very many years, you know, um, nearly 30 years, the, the trade deficit was tilted in favor of uh, Kenya. Now the reverse has happened. You know, Uganda exports far more to Kenya uh, than uh, than it imports. Now you could ask, eh, who were we ever ready for this? No, these things just happen, and people never. And in fact, right now most people are not even aware. When some people look at the data, they say, "Oh my God, eh, what has happened?" Because they can people. People are never prepared. And like Thomas Pinkett says, you know, things like a reduction in, uh, in infant mortality, eh? you never see it, you get what I mean. But a plane crash, yes, <laughs> a drought, you can kind of prepare for that. So I just think that these things will, will creep on us and uh, people will just live with it. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this four-part podcast series and have found it informative. If you have any comments or questions, find me on Twitter. My handle is at Dickens Olewe.